Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Bloomberg Audio Studios. Podcasts. Radio. News. This is the Bloomberg Daybreak Asia podcast. I'm Brian Curtis, along with Doug Krisner. Join us each day for the stories making news and moving markets in the Asia Pacific. You can subscribe to the show anywhere you get your podcasts and always on Bloomberg Radio, the Bloomberg Terminal and the Bloomberg Business app. Well, the cost of living in the month of January increased by more than estimates. We're talking about the Consumer Price Index. We saw the headline figure up at a rate of 3.1%. That's year over year. Street was only looking for 2.9. The core rate also topping forecast, advancing at an annual rate of 3.9%. Earlier, I spoke with Daniel Hornung. He is the Deputy Director at the White House National Security or National Economic Council. I started the conversation by asking how the White House reacted to the CPI data this morning. Well, you know, of course, I think the the first reaction was looking at that monthly core number coming in above expectations. But I think, you know, as you kind of go through the report, uh, I think allowed us to take a step back and, you know, really realize that if you uh, look at the data, if you look at where we've been over the last seven months or so, uh, it's probably not the case that uh, much about this report changes the overall trajectory of where we're going in terms of a trajectory towards lower inflation while the job market and the economy overall stay strong. So, um, you know, you wouldn't expect disinflation to continue on a straight line. We've, we've never expected it, it, it would. There were uh, likely some, uh, you know, factors related to the start of the year at play here. Obviously, we saw an unusual divergence between the CPI rent and the CPI owner's equivalent rent that contributed to some of the uptick that we saw. So I think broadly speaking, you know, it doesn't change the overall trajectory, which, as I mentioned, we really do think is an upbeat one towards uh, lower inflation. So much of the problem has to be addressed through Fed policy. Is there anything that the administration is talking about as a way of addressing higher prices? Sure. Well, you know, I think it it really starts with what the president uh, has uh, done since he's come to office. You know, things like uh, passing legislation to lower prescription drug costs, to lower health care premiums, to lower clean energy costs. He's laser focused on implementing that legislation to make sure we're able to continue to deliver uh, cost relief for American families. Uh, He's taken action uh, where he can, uh, where we have administrative tools to do things like uh, go after some of the hidden junk fees that uh, companies can use to increase prices and reduce transparency and market transparency. Um, So he'll continue to look for actions that he can take and really be focused on doing everything in his power uh, to lower costs for workers and for families. Yesterday, we heard from the head of the Richmond Fed, Tom Barkin, and one of the things that he addressed was the reluctance that many American companies may be feeling to lower prices. And, And Mr. Barkin believes that that creates then a real risk that there will be continued inflation pressure. Now, I know over the weekend during the Super Bowl, the president uh, had a video where he was complaining about shrinkflation, complaining about being ripped off for things like ice cream and snack foods. Is there a way that the president can use the bully pulpit to address this or is that asking too much? 
Well, I think you're, you know, you're absolutely right. One of the things we saw during the pandemic uh, is that as uh, input costs rose and supply disruptions really cascaded through the economy, uh, we saw uh, some companies raise uh, prices by more than their input costs went up. Uh, and you would have kind of expected, uh, just based on the economic theory, the margins to come down somewhat as those uh, pandemic disruptions were behind us. In certain cases, we haven't seen that. And so, you know, to your point, the president, I think, is very focused on uh, calling out where he sees examples of uh, places that margins could come down so that consumers could see relief. Uh, you know, that can happen in a range of we, we know that, you know, those price increases can happen in a range of ways, either the traditional way that we see inflation and price increases or through the kind of uh, shrinkflation that the president was talking about, where the quantity comes down, but the price stays the same. And so you'll see the president continue to, to call for companies uh, where uh, the margins are, are quite elevated still to pass some of the savings that they've seen on to consumers. One of the things I think we can agree on that happened as a result of the pandemic with a lot of the supply chain disruptions, inflationary pressure simply built up. And we've been talking about the possibility maybe of seeing a little bit of disruption when it comes to a lot of the conflict around the Red Sea. Is this something that's top of mind for the administration in trying to guard against supply chain disruptions in the Red Sea area? Sure. Well, um, you know, it's obviously something that across the administration we're monitoring very closely. Uh, you've seen the Department of Transportation, the Navy, other entities across the federal government taking action uh, where appropriate to, you know, make it easier for uh, goods to flow through that region. Uh, you'll see us continue to take action uh, where it's warranted. Um, I think, you know, as where we sit now in terms of the impact on, uh, you know, overall aggregate supply within, in the United States, you know, we're not seeing uh, major disruptions to the U.S. economy, to the U.S. measured data. But as you point out, it's 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 certainly an area of focus and uh, one that we'll need to continue to monitor in the weeks and months ahead. So the president is in the early stages of a presidential campaign. And I'm curious about the strategy when you get onto the campaign trail with the president and you're addressing the issue of inflation. What are the talking points that that really are agreed upon? Well, you know, I, I, I can't comment specifically on the campaign from here, but I will say that, you know, the president has been focused and will continue to be focused on the fact that it's been a difficult few years for the American people. Uh, the pandemic, the price increases that folks experienced uh, due to pandemic disruptions, due to supply chain disruptions, due to Putin's war in Ukraine. Obviously, we've seen significant progress on bringing inflation down. Um, uh, in fact, more progress in the United States than in in any of our peer countries. Um, but the president will be uh, very clear over the months ahead and really conveying a message that he's doing everything in his power. And he has additional legislative proposals on the table that would work to lower costs for American families, for the middle class, for American workers, and really draw a contrast with Republicans in Congress, for example, who, instead of focusing on policies to lower costs for the middle class, have prioritized as their uh, economic approach, tax cuts for the wealthiest Americans and for the largest corporations. And so it's a very different set of economic priorities and one that I think you'll hear the president talk more about in the months ahead. We had just uh, saw a recent survey that was sponsored by the Financial Times in which uh, former President Trump was given kind of uh, more trustworthiness in being able to deal with economic issues than President Biden. Is this concerning to the administration at all? 
Well, one of the things we've seen in the last uh, few months in particular uh, is a, a real uh, beginning of an uptick in consumer sentiment and consumer confidence. We saw, you know, in one of the surveys, a 30% increase uh, over a two-month period. That's the largest increase in in, in uh, more than 30 years. So, I think as we're seeing, you know, wages now on a sustained uh, basis outpacing prices, uh, you're starting to see folks uh, feel better about not just their own financial situation, but the direction of the economy as well. And if you you know look at some of the surveys where uh, folks are asked questions about the president's economic policies, the policies that he's passed uh, that go directly at lowering some of the key costs that families face, the proposals that he's put on the table to reduce the deficit by ensuring that the wealthiest Americans and the largest corporations are paying their fair share, those are overwhelmingly popular. So I think both in kind of uh, making clear the the work that has been done to get this economy going and and give us one of the strongest economic recoveries of any of the advanced economies, and in talking about the president's plans to lower costs, you'll see us increasingly focused on that uh, uh, in the period going forward. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your perspective on what we learned today with consumer inflation cooling a bit less than was expected in the month of January. Daniel Hornung is the Deputy Director of the National Economic Council. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Our guest on the program live with us is Hebe Chen, market analyst at IG. So the, the latest CPI numbers, um, that will that will cause a little bit of a disruption in kind of the smooth flow of things in markets. However, it may give some investors uh, who, who missed out on the rally, and particularly in some of the biggest technology stocks, a chance to get in at lower levels. That's buying on the dip. And it may also give investors a chance to, to buy into the bond market with yields up closer to 5% than they've been in the past couple of months. Uh, your picture now of the environment at the moment, Hebe. Well, yes, I agree. I think, yeah, the CPI in terms of number-wise is a bit disappointment, but it's, for me, what the market's movement, the reaction to that shows me that it's definitely more than that disappointment. It's definitely sort of a reality checking for that sort of overdone optimism that has been pushed market for the past three months. You can actually look into sort of a reverse version that what happened from the November, the CPI is softer, the market start to picking up. But today is more of a reverse way of that. We're seeing that the CPI is a bit of a disappointment there and the market start to coming back to checking that whether or not that we've been sort of celebrate that too early, even just before the first cut can be confirmed. So it is a timing that we probably expect a bit of a bumpy ahead. But overall, I'm still quite positive about the yearly end. Um, I'll look for the U.S. stock for 2024. I hear what you're saying about the market's enthusiasm, but to be fair, at the December Fed meeting, I mean, even policymakers were optimistic that uh, the worst of the inflation story was behind them. Now, maybe we're mm. seeing a bit of a stalling in the level or the rate of uh, disinflation, but I'm wondering what it has done to your predictions on uh, the Fed beginning to cut interest rates. If you look at what the swaps market is indicating right now, maybe the first rate cut doesn't happen until July. Is is that consistent with your thinking, or are you seeing things differently? 
Well, as I said, I think the market do the reaction in the market today, which that has already pushed up there to the July, is a bit of the. I would say a bit of the overdone for me. Um, I still think that June is on the table because I think that before now and then there's quite a lot of data were coming through, including the PC by the end of this this month. But also on the other hand, if you're talking, looking at the psychological point that when the market expecting the inflation will stay there, they will potentially to uh, slowing down the people that were spending, they will potentially help the inflation. So I think there's a lot of uncertainty that we're saying that we will see inflation will stay high for another quarter hmm. and um yeah and that, that's why i still keep my my door open for the gin cut curious about your thoughts on australia because you're you're talking to us from melbourne and uh, we we understand yep. that the the asx 200 is close to an all-time high i think it's on the fifth or sixth move on on 7600 uh, which is pretty interesting that's yep. been quite a barrier uh, and inflation is still very high even higher in australia than the us right Exactly. Yes, you're right. Um, so RBA, the Reserve Bank of Australia, they are now the only one major central bank that still keep the door open for further hike. So in the last week's statement, they're saying that we're still not ruling, doing out any hike, no, doing out any possibility there. And as you point out, the inflation is still the highest. We're still having about 4%. Um, what the RBA, the game they're playing is quite different to the Fed. So what RBA trying to do, they sort of quite a balancing there. On the big picture, they're saying that we're not, we still keep the door open for more hike. But on the other hand, they sort of revise down the expectation for the inflation for the next three and six months time. So I think compared to the other central bank, the RBA, the Australia the central bank still trying to sort of um, playing a safe game. They're not saying that anything could happen, but they're not saying that anything could not happen. And that's the that's the biggest picture for the Australia's um, central bank at the stage. But what the market is sort of taking this message more a bit of a biasly. They just want to listen to what they're trying to listen. They heard they're saying that okay, the inflation target were moving down for the next three and six months, which push up the Australian stocks to its all-time height at the end of January. I think the latest economic analysis from the RBA was predicting that services inflation will remain high and it's only expected to cool gradually. Is this primarily a function of higher labor cost or is there more to it? Yes, you're right. Labor cost is one of the key components. We're seeing that which growth pick up the to its highest level um, at the end of the fourth quarter of 2023. That's one of the one of the thing. But meanwhile, we're going to have another unemployment rate data coming through tomorrow, which was showing that the unemployment rate was picking up to 4%. And if that's the actual number, that will be the highest number in over two or three years time. So we definitely see a bit of a softening in terms of the labor market, but it's still pretty tight. We haven't talked too much about China over the past many days, uh, partly because of the holiday mm. and partly because investors yeah. just don't seem very interested in Chinese assets anymore. Do you think that continues, Hebe? Well, yes, most likely. I think the reason that the investor seems to lose interest in Chinese market is it becomes a quite a tricky one. Um, yes, on data point that you're seeing the Chinese stocks jumping up 5% before the Chinese New Year, but many people, including myself, believe that it's quite a bit of artificial rally, um, most likely pushed by the national team, as people call it. So the question is that even the China reopens next week after Chinese New Year, the big question is how many investors will still bet on that the 
national team will keep supporting the market sustainably and how many people will bet on the, a fundamental change of the Chinese economy. And they, they are the biggest challenge, they are the biggest question that will remain that when the Chinese market returns in the new year of dragon. And I'm wondering whether or not before then we begin to get some high frequency data on the Chinese consumer, how they've been spending during the Lunar New Year holiday. Do you have any early indications that you can share? I do see um, the couple of the you know the picture from the social media that they do have a quite strong domestic traveling demand, but I also see the data showing that the outbound the people going overseas has dropping into the lowest level to, even before the um, the pandemic. So it looks like they do have quite a, a big shifting in terms of consumer behavior. Will they keep supporting the domestic consumption market? I think I still have a question mark there as we're seeing the inflation data. Actually, the deflation our pace is dropping into lowest level since the financial crisis. So that's the most recent data we have. Will the Chinese New Year change the picture fundamentally? I don't think so. So Japan and India are two other markets that have received a lot of attention of late. For investors that are, that are kind of newbies uh, looking at, at maybe deploying some capital into those markets, um, how do you recommend they do it? Well, the these two markets, one of the reasons why I think that these two markets sort of attract quite a lot of spotlight is partially because the investors or the capitals is sort of outflow from China and they're now looking for the alternative to the Chinese market. They both markets have their all bright spot and a bit of the concern there. For the Japanese market, I think that the economy does show some of the of a rebound and recovery since last year. But the thing is that I think for the Bank of Japan's policy is still getting at the very uncertainty level. They have a bit of back and forth, and I think that will be the biggest uncertainty there. For the Indian market, I think they do have quite a huge potential given the economy growth, given the population there. But how much time would require would be required for them to getting the same level as China? Um, I think that's, that's, a, that's a risk that investors have to take and think about. Yeah, I mentioned that because in the Hong Kong market here. We have ETFs that you can buy, but the bid-ask spread is pretty big because there's not that much liquidity in them. And uh, for, for some investors that don't have access, for instance, to uh, ETFs in the United States, it could be a little tricky. And by the way, uh, we are seeing a lot of weakness in the yen. That may be mitigating some of the uh, losses in Tokyo. The Nikkei's down, but it's only down eight-tenths of a percent outperforming today. Hebe, thank you so much for joining us. Hebe Chen, market analyst at IG. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc. China says it opposes the European Union's proposed trade restrictions on Chinese firms. Joining us now in our studios in Hong Kong is Jenny Marsh, Bloomberg team leader for Greater China EcoGov. Well, this is interesting. Uh, banning European companies from doing business with these three firms, uh, it has to be approved. Um, the EU, EU tried this last year, but it didn't get approved. There was some pushback from from uh, some of the member states. What do we is is the environment different now? What do we expect? 
That's right. So last year, um, there was a um, reporting that this had been proposed and that the Chinese officials had given them reassurances, um, which sort of led to the Chinese companies being taken off of the list um, that would lead to trade restrictions. Uh, now, it seems three companies have made their way back onto it. Um, and this does come sort of as, as tensions between China and the EU have been building. You know, um, Brussels has this probe into EV manufacturers um, and Beijing announced an anti-dumping investigation into French brandy um, at the at the beginning of the year. So, you know, the EU and China are sort of very carefully balancing the relationship right now. And, you know, it's, it's in danger of tipping into some kind of trade war mm. if they don't find a way of sort of managing ties without um, without sort of escalating the rhetoric. Is there a, a report or is there a way that the EU was able to verify and kind of, you know, put some muscle behind these accusations? Is there some type of investigation that has been conducted along these lines? I mean, this is a proposal that Bloomberg has seen, and it's not a public document. So right now, you know, the sort of the methodology um, is in a particularly uh, transparent process. But we do know that European officials are speaking to Chinese officials, and they seem to be acting, you know, with um, sort of a degree of caution before they publish um, these trade restrictions. So I imagine, you know, the various sort of exchanges we've seen at diplomatic levels and um, with trade representatives, this is something that's coming up, along with, you know, assisting uh, the European Union with its trade probes as well. I feel that the environment is different now and that you're definitely more in the area of a trade war than we were last year, particularly because of this, um, uh, the exchange of probes here on EV manufacturers, uh, Chinese EV manufacturers, and then China flipping around with, uh, with the cognac stuff. Um, so if it is a trade war, what does it mean comes next? I mean, is it like, is it on the order of the U.S. and China or to a much lesser degree? I mean, for China, the hard thing is how do they fight back? You know, um, Europe is an important trade partner and there are areas that they could cover. They could sort of, um, they could target such as sort of cosmetics. Um, there's some agricultural products and um, high end luxury goods. But essentially, that China is quite limited in how it can respond if, if Europe decides to really ramp this up. China needs Europe as a market um, for many of its products. So, you know, um, where it goes from this, we'll have to see. But it's this dangerous environment for China because, you know, you've got Trump out there looking increasingly good on the campaign trail and threatening 60% tariffs on Chinese goods if he's elected. And then you have the EU sort of turning up the temperature um, around the trade deficit as well. So, you know, it's just putting increased pressure on Beijing at a time when the economy is already under a lot of strain domestically. So two dozen firms in total, from what I understand, are on this list, including the three based in China. Do we know the nature of their business? And I'm curious, are any in the banking industry? Do we know? Um, little, I, I actually don't know too much about the specifics of the companies. I understand that they're believed to be essentially importing goods and then re-exporting them to Russia um, and sort of goods that are deemed useful to Russia's military efforts. Um, but in terms of the companies, they're not sort of um, brands that we would have heard of. So I think, you know, digging into who those companies are and what their exposure is to the European market as well would be uh, would be interesting. And Hong Kong uh, has some companies on the list, too. Um, I haven't actually seen the list of companies uh, uh, and we didn't actually name them in our reporting on this. Um, but but to what degree is Hong Kong kind of uh, involved? Like you said, there are includes firms in Hong Kong. When they, um, when Hong Kong firms were exposed to this previously, I think there was some concern that they weren't 
actually sort of um, traditional sort of Hong Kong firms that they were shell companies for other firms sort of that have an office listed mm. in Hong Kong, but they're not you know, they're not sort of Chinese companies, if you like. Um, Hong Kong is sort of uh, famous for sort of being a base for a lot of shell companies. So um, it, it could be that, you know, Hong Kong sort of registered companies, but actually not Chinese firms as such. So we had the news of the proposed new trade restrictions yesterday, Beijing today pushing back and calling uh, this plan really illegal sanctions. I'm wondering, do we have a sense of what the next step may be very quickly? I mean, I imagine the next time we have uh, meetings between European and Chinese officials, this is going to come up. We've already seen that Chinese officials are lobbying behind the scenes. Um, so I imagine this is going to be like another area of discussion between the two sides when they do meet. And when they talk about illegality, uh, in, in what sort of jurisdiction? Uh, is that in the, in, in the eyes of the international community or what? It is an interesting phrase. It's yeah. a standard Chinese phrase in how yeah. they sort of re- uh, refer to the sanctions. Yeah, they illegal. unilaterally it's oppose bad. them. It's yep. It's terrible. <laughs> Except when China imposes yeah. them and then yeah, it's okay. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Jenny, thanks very much for joining us here on the program live. Uh, Jenny Marsh, Bloomberg Team Leader for Greater China Economic and Government uh, Material. This is Bloomberg. This has been the Bloomberg Daybreak Asia podcast, bringing you the stories making news and moving markets in the Asia Pacific. Visit the Bloomberg podcast channel on YouTube to get more episodes of this and other shows from Bloomberg. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen. And always on Bloomberg Radio, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.